Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today we have Carl Liu, who is the founder of the world's first high school uh, founded and led investment fund. So Carl, tell me, uh, where did your interest for finance and investing come from? Yeah, so I think the story really begins during COVID. Um, I think, you know, in the very beginning, I kind of had, I had kind of had the same thing that, you know, all the other high schoolers probably had as well. You know, the first week is like, oh, it's fun. You know, we have a couple of days of school off. And then slowly you kind of spiral into this like never ending, um, you know, like void event of video games. I mean, um, I guess I could say that I got pretty good at uh, you know, Counter-Strike, but <laughs> that's pretty much all I took out of it. So, you know, one day you eventually come to that one day where you're like, okay, um, I can't just keep on playing video games anymore. I got to do something. Yeah, you got to do something. You got to do something. So, I mean, for me, I actually first started off with computer science. Like, I was like, hmm, I'm playing games all day. What do you know? What if I could code some games? You know, like, what are some of the games that, you know, I wish I could have played but were, were never available? You know, could I make them myself? Um, computer science, I did a lot of coding, but then I eventually um, kind of transferred into finance. I was like, hmm, you know, computer science is not for me. Uh, investing, this thing is pretty cool. Let me go over there and take a look. So... That's kind of how I got into investing. And again, like all of the high schoolers, I started off like technical analysis, um, yeah. thinking that I was cool or, well, I, I will say that there is some merit to it, but, um, you know, I eventually found my way into like, you know, more like the traditional fundamental uh, finance. Yeah. So that's pretty much how I got started. And what were the resources that you used to really build that foundation around value investing, but also technical analysis? Yeah. So, I mean, TA that's kind of like a YouTube thing or I know TD Ameritrade has like a very, they have like a course. Like if you, if you have like a brokerage account with them, you can access like their library and they have like courses on TA there. But like, I think, you know, there's a lot of resources that I access that I, that I use, but to be honest, you really only needed two things. If you want to get into um, like traditional fundamental analysis, number one, there's this course on CFI called um like, it's called like, the fundamentals of accounting pretty much and the reason i say this is because accounting is really what serves as like the edifice the foundation of everything finance above if you don't know accounting quite frankly like you're probably not going to understand the other 99 percent. like accounting really is like the tip of the iceberg that really unlocks everything below so there's this course on cfi it's completely free it's like maybe like two hours long and i think it just serves as like a really good foundation for you know people who want to get into finance and the second resource that I recommend is this book actually called um, Investment Banking. I think, I don't remember what comes after it, but it's by Joshua Pearl and Joshua Rosenbaum. So yeah, it's like a big book on investment banking. It's essentially like a textbook really. And they have all these chapters, but the two that were most applicable to me were comparables companies analysis and DCF analysis, right? Because, you know, I'm only a kid. I'm not going to care about like, I, I don't need to build like an M&A model, right? That's not yeah. like interesting to me yet. <laughs> So DCF was really the thing that uh, kind of spoke to me most. And that's where I learned, you know, that's where I was drawn to initially. So yeah, those are really the only two resources that um, I would recommend people just like commit to because everything else is really just like, yeah. Yeah. Did you um, find anybody else like in your high school or did you already have any friends that were interested in finance investing or was it kind of not like a loan role, but um, Yeah. I mean, I think during COVID, it was definitely a little bit more independent. But, um, you know, once school opened up, well, I will say that I, um, like, towards, like, the middle half of my freshman year, I just started, you know, obviously talking to more people. And, yeah, there are there is a lot of, there is, like, a small group of people, you know, who enjoy business and finance in my school. 
Um, but I think it's really through like competitions and like case studies that we like meet other people in person or on Zoom, where I think you can find like you know a really solid team of uh, like-minded investors. Do you think um, schools in general in America place enough emphasis and value on finance and investing and even entrepreneurship? Um, when you look at like, you know, how much value they place on sports, you think, you know, they should place the same amount of value and and time into uh, extracurricular activities. But I think, frankly, they don't. Do you think that they should place more value on entrepreneurship and finance? Um, That's a good question, because like, I think like, you know, to people who really like business and finance, the answer is always going to be no. You feel like, you know, like, oh, it's the school. Should, they should always teach us more about investing, more about business. But um, I mean, I, I'm in my senior year and I'm taking like a financial literacy class. Honestly, like to people who aren't like fully like committed to like a career in that, you know, in finance or in business, it's honestly, I, I think, I think it is like enough, like, um, or like it does provide like a good foundation. And I think it does provide like, um, like, like a good place to start off with but um yeah I, I know some schools have like concentrations you know they can actually like study finance but um you know i think i think in america i think there should be more there should be a better emphasis on like actually analyzing the businesses and behind like the stocks themselves rather than just saying okay pick a bunch of large cap stocks and diversify um yeah um and i also saw that you took one of the wharton classes what was that experience like yeah, so I actually took um essential finance my freshman year. Um, that was virtual, so a much different experience from the one I took this year, which was actually in person. So this year I took um I think it's called leadership in the business world. Um, yeah, three week summer program, gone to Penn's campus, ate there, you know, lived there as if I was like an actual student there. Um, yeah, and I think and I think overall it, it was like one of the most memorable experiences in my life because. Um, well, for me, it was like the first summer camp that I've ever been to. And I think you actually meet a lot of people that you take with um, for the rest of for the rest of your life. I mean, for me, that's been like three months. But, um, you know, I've already met with um, like I met five people at the program that are now, you know, doing challenges with me. You know, some of them were actually working in my fund now um, and et cetera. I think, yeah, it was just a very good experience overall. And you get to learn a lot. And you get to connect with some really amazing people. What were the key differences between the online class versus the in-person, other than just like seeing people in person? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Freshman year, I honestly didn't even know what I was doing. But um, yeah, the biggest difference, I think, um, I think, I think it, it could just be engagement. You know, I think when you're sitting at a desk in your chair, um, you don't feel as motivated to do everything that the program can offer you um, when you're in person, right? When you're in person surrounded by other people. You know, this person's doing that. Oh, I'm doing this challenge. You know, you become motivated yourself to you know take on more than you usually would. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one of the biggest differences um, there. Yeah, because I took um I didn't take leadership in the business world. I took um the future business leaders of whatever. It was a different oh, like online this class. year or I took it this year. Um, I mean, I talked to I talked to someone else about it who took the essentials of finance class, and I mean the consensus we came to was like. It was okay. Like I learned some things, but a lot of it was pretty basic. Um, which we 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 were thinking about it, and we were like, we do think that there should be, and a lot of people are trying to solve this. There should be some more uh, 
finance education that's tailored towards that intermediate level. Because there's a lot of kids like you and me who are interested in finance and investing, but there aren't a lot of resources for teens who already know a little bit, but want to get to that next level. Um, yeah. But do, do you think there, there should be more resources spent on that intermediate level for teens? Because in two years, they're going to be going to college anyway. So yeah, I think I think there should be. I mean, I mean, I, I of course I'd say you know I wish there was, but like, I think that maybe like the case isn't enough for like schools to spend money on it. Like they think like you know just offering that basic level is enough, and you know because like you said that intermediate level is such a small, you know it it is like a relatively smaller population. Um, you know it wouldn't make sense. I guess if, I guess to them it might not make sense to to wait to vote like however much resources towards that. Yeah. That's the only thing I can say. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of like, I've seen so many nonprofits that are like, we're making, we're increasing the financial literacy of, of Gen Z. And it's like, I don't really see them adding any value. I think that they're just doing it for college applications. And that's a problem that a lot of people are, are going into entrepreneurship, not because they want to build good businesses, but they just want to get into college and that's their motivations. But I think you've definitely, and I hope you can get into this now um with um yellow river what was your motivations for starting it yeah so i mean uh the comment about like those uh non-profit like yeah i completely agree i mean most of them are for colleges i mean you know it's it, it, it's 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 i guess you know when you're in that field it's really hard to like separate the wheat from the chaff right i mean how can you really stand out um but yeah going back to the motivation for yellow river capital it's honestly exactly that i feel like you know when you're a high schooler that's interested in finance you really only have like four ways to explore right you can either you know start your own non you know not quote-unquote non-profit fund you know which i'm not casting any shade on but um or you can do like a case study or like a you know like a stockfish competition you know either participate um in like your school's finance club or you can just invest on your own either that be you know virtually or um, in real life but there wasn't any platform that was geared specifically towards allowing students to collaborate in like a collaborative environment and use real money and deploy real capital, um, you know, in whatever investment that they wanted. There was never that platform that combined the real aspect of like individual investing and the teamwork based um, like challenge of those case studies and those in, in, you know, in those um, you know, in those stock pitches, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to combine those two together, the theory and the practice um into one place and that was kind of how yellow capital was born um yeah and i also just you know, at the time that when i was a founding YRC, i really just wanted to be like a like a fund manager so i guess that was also a really big motivation the first question that might that came to my mind was like the legality of it and how you got through yeah. the regulations so tell me about the whole legal aspect of that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's a that's a that's a very common question you know is this even legal people people a lot of people in my my school they're always like oh you're doing like shady stuff <laughs> but um no it, it is legal like like we are high schoolers and like we are um uh, i guess operating it but like we're like our, our parents still um um like, like adults and like yeah. you know, adults still have like they, they still play like the managerial role in all the legality and stuff <laughs> but um yeah for the most part yeah, like the way that like um, the kids get uh, participation is through uh, the partnership contract. So like we're, we're a general partnership um, in New York State. So you file the DVA, you get the partnership set up. And then, you know, when you form a partnership, you have an agreement. And that's where you can kind of, um, you know, twist and tweak and put um, and allow minors to have, you know, that participation. And 
they contribute to investment decisions, et cetera. Yeah, but it is legal. <laughs> yeah. It is legal. It is legal. Do you think, um, I mean, there is that that stigma towards like investing for teenagers isn't illegal. Maybe it shouldn't be. Um, I do think, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts is, should there be any um, amendment to the legality in the United States towards how teens can invest? If they get that sign off from their parents to take on that risk, do you think they should be able to? Or do you think they should be still have to wait till they're 18? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I've thought about for a while. I mean, it all, you know, let's ask ourselves the question, right? Like, why aren't investors, I mean, why aren't miners allowed to invest by themselves? Well, it's because like in the 1950s, um, there was no financial education. There was no financial literacy that kids had access to. Um, it wouldn't make sense for kids to invest. And that's why there's a law to stop them from doing that, right? Because, you know, if you had people in the 1950s where kids, you know, had you know, however much money they had and they're just doing whatever they wanted within the stock market, obviously that's going to introduce volatility. Obviously that's going to, you know, uh, it's going to constrain the flow of capital across like the United States. And obviously you don't want that to happen. So that's where there's a law. But nowadays, because of the internet, because there's so much more, um, you know, financial literacy, that's like, you know, that's so much more ac accessible uh, to high schoolers, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that age should be reduced, like maybe from 18 to 16, um, you know, when it comes to like owning assets. I mean, another big part of it is because like when you do own an asset, I think like, like it's something about um, like you just have have to be over 18 to like own something and like sign off and have it be legally binding. Yeah. So that's definitely like a, like a hurdle that people face, but um, you know, going back because there is so much more you know, education. Um, I think kids, you know, they, they truly should have the, the ability to like invest a little bit more freely. I also think in the next 10 years, I think financial information and education is going to become a lot more democratized through AI. I think right now, I mean, I use ChatGBT for a bunch of different things for high school, even outside of high school, it might be like, you know, here's a science question, explain this to me that I don't understand. And I think a lot of even like down to a middle school level, people are starting to ask those finance questions because they go on TikTok, they go on social media, they're seeing all of that, go on day trading and make $5 million doing Forex. And they, they get interested in it, but there's no real value education and they can just use uh, an AI assistant and get that information. So I think 10, 20 years, um, that minimum level of interest um, through the, 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 the value of age, the variable of age, it's going to decrease maybe to like, I'm thinking 13, 14, where that's where people really start to get interested mm, in investing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. How do you think AI is going to change uh, investing for teenagers? Uh, investing for teenagers? Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just having more information is definitely a big part of that. Um, you know, again, like you said, I mean, I've been doing this myself. If there's honestly, like, if there's like a concept um, in finance that like, I'm not, that I'm not like totally understanding, like ChatGPT will actually give me like the two paragraph explanation that I've been yearning for, you know, like it will actually do that. So how will it change? I think, yeah, I, I do agree. It could lower like the barrier, the informational barrier to entry, right? That's definitely the case. But um, I think there there is like a case to be made with um, with respect to like investing strategies, right? AI can also help people generate these like, you know, very honestly, like not too shabby investment theses and that are like very like very easily executable um in today's market um yeah like personally i know like I, i've done a little bit like quantitative trading um like six months in my sophomore year and yeah ai definitely does play a role i think i think there's a problem because like 
because you're training AI based off historical data and in the stock market, future results typically have like very little correlation on just like pure historical price data. You know, it's very hard for AI to you know, predict like the stock price essentially. But um, I know people are like developing like certain like strategies around AI. Um, like I know factor models. I don't know if you like ever heard of that, but like um, you know, just search at like French pharma uh, factoring and then that's one way to go about mm -hmm. using AI to invest. Yeah, and and the I talked to a quant trader and the the last episode, and we had a good conversation about how this like the skill level. I don't know if that's still the correct terminology, but the the skill level and the ability to invest is gonna shrink between someone of like you know someone who works at a hedge fund and someone who is just a retail trader because they have access to all that information. And I think that's the main way um, AI is going to change investing is that that ability to um, execute on smart investments and educate like educated investments is, go is going to you know change um, but my next question yeah. is going into um, is it pronounced Avalarian it was the investment oh yeah Avalarian yeah Avalarian tell me about that uh, how'd you get into it what is it yeah so Avalarian um, so that's a b2b software as a service um, private equity fund Mm -hmm. So you know, I was doing my, it was like sophomore year summer. I was looking for, I guess, like things to do or you know, like a better wording. But um, yeah, so Avalarian, that was like an internship that I kind of landed on. Um, so yeah, I literally just emailed them. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much like how it got started. I'm not going to lie. I think a big part of the reason why you know, as a high schooler, especially as like a sophomore, um, like they let me work there was because um, the work, it, it, we're not like slander, they're, they're uh, the company but like the work they gave us was a little bit menial right like mm -hmm. so what they had was like a big spreadsheet with like 300 linkedin links and by the end of the week i had to like parse through every one of them um you know plug in like how many employees worked at the company so that i could make like a revenue estimate and then kind of like just like filter through and see if the company like fits within like the funds like a uh, software acquisition criteria um but i still did it anyways because even like, like, like the, it was very clear, like the trade-off that they were making us like, Hey, like, you know, you're going to help us do some of this, like, you know, brunt work, but, um, um, we're going to teach you how to do private equity. We're going to teach you what the pipeline looks like. So I kind of learned how to do that. You know, like, what is it, what is an NDA? Why do you have to sign it? You know, what is a SIM? Um, how do you read through the SIM, analyze the SIM, um, put together these presentations on industry, industry analysis, um, the company analysis, uh, build like an LBO model. And, you know, how does like, how does really like the process work from, you know, literally like sourcing all the way to actual execution. Yeah. And that was the biggest part that I've taken away from. And I've actually applied that um, at YRC. Yeah. So that was kind of how the, how the internship went. Um, I think, I think, I think it, what it taught me was that, um, is that you should always try to like, you should, you should always just try to go above and beyond. Like, I think when like a boss, you know, like someone that's like management tells you to do a certain thing, um, you often have more freedom than you think, and it's because they want you to have that freedom. Um, yeah, they told me it's like, hey, just make sure you push through all these, you know, th these three hundred LinkedIn links by the end of the week. But they're also saying like, they're also giving you the freedom to say, hey, if you can find ways to improve this process. Do that. Do so. So, I mean, what was I doing? A repetitive task. Um, what are repetitive tasks? You know, what can you do with them? You can automate them, right? So I use Octoparse, and then now. Um, you know, I pushed through the 300 links in like two days, right? It became 
So, but then guess what? They gave us, they made us parts through like, like a thousand leagues. <laughs> after. So um, I kind of, I kind of like screwed over like the rest of the company, like the employees that are working there. Mm-hmm. But um, because they all adopted like the, the automation system, it, it was fine, I guess. Uh, good for Avalara and they can source more companies. Um, so yeah, just always be on the lookout. Just like, just like improve wherever you can. I think that automation piece is interesting. It makes me think about, um, I know we keep on going back to AI, but how AI is going to change venture capital. I mean, there's the whole sourcing piece that you said was very um, interesting and important to you. Um, I know I know Eric Sue's working on um, Aviato, which is looking at early trading, like early signs of companies to find if it's a good, a sound investment. Because you went through that internship, how do you see AI playing into that early um, investment role and seeing if it's a sound investment or not? Yeah, yeah. So... So it's like seeing if it's like a good investment or like, yeah. it's like purely sourcing. I think both. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, from like a sourcing perspective, it's just, it's going to automate everything because um, like a big thing that we did at Avalair was like, we had to send, we had to create like these customized emails. Um, we were like, you know, we had like a LinkedIn link and if it fit within the funds criteria, then we were like essentially craft an email, like reaching out to them, like, Hey, can we schedule a call and potentially discuss the the, the, the prospect of us acquiring you guys? Um, that took a lot of time, like for each company, it had to be like very thorough. Um, I bet now that if you plug it into ChatGPT, it can generate that same email, but better in like a fraction of the second. Right. So I think that's going to like exponentially, um, increase sourcing and therefore like the, the, the overall deal flow in private equity in venture capital. I think that's definitely, you know, for sure going to be the case. And I guess it also just helps to execute your investment strategy faster. And ultimately, you know, what can you do with AI? Well, I guess you can reduce your headcount, right? Make your workforce more leaner. And that's going to help funds increase margins. Yeah. And then go into that investment process too, which how do you think um, AI can help VC and PE um, correlate if it's a good investment? I mean, I guess you can still just ask like the AI for like, you know, what are, what are, what is like a good strategy and then um, have them try to execute it. Um, how will they try to help like find good investments, like 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 uh like assess like the quality? Yeah. I mean? Um. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak too much about it. Um, but um. Yeah, I mean, AI at the end of the day is just gonna, I guess, help you put together the pieces faster. So, mm-hmm. um, maybe assess the quality faster. Like, I mean, you still have to like create like a like a criteria for it to look through. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's still. One thing you got to do. Yeah, I think, I mean, as much as I speak against like Web3 and crypto, I think if there was some kind of like, I don't even know if this is Web3 or crypto, but like a really large database of of um, startups, like there already is Crunchbase, but even a larger one where it's like you can just add your startup the moment you start it. And then you could connect um, a plugin with AI if VC, VC firms and PE firms all had their own AI that was connected to that really large database that scheduled through, um, not scheduled through, went through that large database and looked for companies that matched uh, their investment thesis. I think that that um, would be really good. I think OpenVC already has one and I can I can link it below where you put in all of your, um, your company's financials and like categorizations and then it recommends you to to VC firms who are looking for your company. So I really think that in the future AI can help with that that sourcing. Um, 
yeah, I want to go back to YRC and, you know, what's your day-to-day tasks like? Like, what are your day-to-day tasks like? Yeah, I mean, so I guess I guess for me, like, running YRC is as much of, like, a, like a managerial role as much as it is, like, like, an equities analyst role. So I think for the most part, you know, I'm not only responsible for, you know, like, trying to reach out to new investors and um, potentially getting a new investment, but, you know, I'm also, you know, just doing, like, the day-to-day um equities analysis right i'm still reading through the 10ks i'm still putting together the equity research reports the pitch decks etc and i think it's important to do that because you know how else no number one how else are you gonna like lead through example and like create the quality or like set the example of the quality that you expect from your teammates and secondly um you know people are just gonna naturally want to follow someone who knows that they will do the same work that they're doing right and i think i learned that best at Avalari, like um, I think a lot of the the high schoolers, well, not a lot of the high schools, but a lot of the like the entry level people who were at Avalarian, um, you know, weren't so happy with management because they're like, oh, we're sourcing this all day, and um, you know, they're just like kind of taking all of our labor and kind of using it for our own benefit, their own benefit, which just kind of true, I guess. So I was like, okay, so if I'm leading YRC, um, I know for a fact that I'm going to need to do the actual research myself as well. So. Yeah, day to day, you know, going through a company's 10Ks, reading through like Seeking Alpha, whatever, um, reading like other people's equity research reports on the same companies and trying to find, uh, you know, new insights, right? What makes this company a good investment? What may, maybe, maybe, what, what are some reasons maybe why we should stay away from it? Um, yeah, so that's my day to day. Kind of maintaining the legal status is also part of my job, like filing taxes, uh, like filing paperwork with the state, et cetera. Um, yeah, social media, I guess, a little bit, but kind of delegate that task to other people at this point. And what do you, in the future, would you still want to be working for, or not working for, have, having a role in YRC or would you want to work on something else? Um, I, I, I think um, I might actually pass down YRC because I'm going to keep it as like a as like a high school thing. I mm-hmm. think it's novel in that way, right? Um, you know, once you hit above 18, you know, you're dealing with like college funds, you know, like student club funds. Um. I don't, I don't, I don't think YRC can have, can like compete very well with those funds because, you know, I mean, at that point, we're just like another fund, right? We're not, I mean, we only got like $24,000 in AUM. It's not, it's not, you know, it's kind of a, it pales in comparison to like the hundreds of thousands that um, like your everyday college uh, student club investment fund has. Yeah. Right. So I think I will, I will keep it at like a high schooler as like a high schooler thing. I'm probably going to pass it down to like a, you know, sophomore or junior and have them keep on running it. Yeah, but like, it, like in general, in the future, yeah, I, I do want to. Preferably, I would want to work at a fund. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, do you want to talk about anything before we wrap it up? Um, not so much, but um, I guess you know, I do appreciate you having me on. Um, it's nice talking about um, investing with other people as always, and I really do like the stuff that you're doing, man. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Rooting for you. <laughs>